HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. I'm HRN Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're focusing on water. You'll hear some disturbing news from an NYC investigative reporter. Here lies the problem, how much we don't know about water tanks. Katie Kiefer reports on water woes in the heartland. Their water is heavily polluted with nitrates, which are coming from agricultural chemical applications on fields and running off into their water table. And we'll check in with Dave Arnold, who's about to open a new bar that will serve some pretty fancy H2O. It is hardcore. So pour up a tall glass of ice water and be refreshed by this week's episode of Meat in 3, available on heritageradionetwork.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm the other half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Greg, great to hear from you. Darren, as always, congratulations on having your baby girl. Yes, we're so excited. Josephine is five weeks old today, and she has been making the rounds at all the L.A. restaurants. In fact, we stopped by Friedman's, who's on today's show, uh, for a big brisket dinner, which is hands down one of the best, if not the best, large format option in L.A. right now. Amazing. And uh, we have Bodega from Brooklyn, who's actually heading out to hit some West Coast dates later this summer. They'll be live in studio talking about pretentiousness and why that's a positive thing in their new record and the scroll. And before we kick off today's show, we want to take a moment to pay tribute and honor Anthony Bourdain, who's passing this week, shocked not just the culinary world, but everyone beyond. I know personally, uh, Kitchen Confidential, like many others, really inspired me and put me on the track to work in food and to show that showing up every day for work, day in, day out, year in, year out, is really important. Darren, I couldn't have said it better myself. You will be missed. And please, if you know of anyone who is facing depression or needs a helping hand or just even someone that you love that you think is going through a hard time, reach out to them and have that hard conversation. It's a shame to think that this could have been prevented. It is. It's really tough, and it's a big thing, especially working in kitchens or working in media or being uh, just, you know, uh, average, normal job or anything. You know, depression can be with anyone. I know that I've dealt with it a lot throughout my life, and it's not something to be ashamed of, but it is something that people should talk about and embrace. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to talk to people. Um, and, you know, if you notice that someone might be feeling down, reach out. You know, a, a little kindness, a little empathy goes a long way, uh, especially in this day and age. I agree. Well, I love you, buddy. Love you too, bud. All right, let's get into the show. Here we go. We got a song from Bodega here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. This is New Bodega Song.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are sitting in the beautiful Freedman's in Los Angeles. I feel like I've stepped into a different era in the best way possible. We're sitting here with Jonah Friedman, owner, designer, and operator, and Liz Johnson, executive chef. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Uh, congratulations first. Thank you. For the best new chef. Uh, Nod, we'll, we'll get to the details a little bit later, but how awesome is that? It's pretty crazy. It's a pretty humbling experience to be included in the lineup so and be part of that 300 person legacy yeah um so for those who are unfamiliar with Friedman's and have never been and they may have not been because you've only been open for a few months um how would you describe it I think the the sort of elevator pitch for Friedman's is like a new school Jewish deli and bar with an old school flair no and a little bit of flair because you wanted to do something different and modern, or you thought that there was something that Delhi had not been explored. Well, I think we've paired, we've paired sort of a like an old school, um, sort of like older established restaurant aesthetic with a menu that reads a little bit more contemporary, like it's Jewish deli food, but for a more contemporary palate. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Um, so, uh, let's go back a little bit. Um, where were you guys both born? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Toronto. Uh, I'm from upstate New York. I'm from Schenectady. Um, and did, was deli food a big part of your upbringing, or was it something you came to later in life? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm Jewish. Grew up in Toronto, and there's quite a large Jewish population in Toronto. Yep. Um, and I think... Probably when I was younger, there was a more vibrant. I mean, like most places in America, there was there used to be a more vibrant deli scene. I mean, it's been it's a hard business to run. It is, yeah. It's all protein heavy. It's right? all protein, and there's always this expectation of giving the customer a little something extra, you yeah. know, extra pickles, extra bread, <laughs> yeah, larger sandwiches, things like that. Yeah. Um, but you grew up with, it. and there is. Um, my dad's from Montreal, so I'm oh, cool. very familiar with the Montreal bagel. Yeah. But I know that there's a, a Toronto-style bagel as well. Yeah, we've we've sort of dubbed, like there's there's this bakery called Grice in Toronto, mm-hmm. and they're a hundred plus years in in business. And at this point, I think for a long time there was always a debate between the Toronto bagel and the Montreal bagel in Toronto. And at this point, Grice has kind of taken over the the market a little bit. Sure. To the point where one could argue that that's the Toronto-style bagel. I have talked to people from Toronto, and they're like, oh, I read that Friedman's has a Toronto-style bagel. I'm like, that doesn't exist. So, it doesn't exist. No. It's not like an actual thing, but we've sort of made it sure. into one. Um, because we, we used the Grice recipe, or like the, the idea of the Grice bagel as the jumping-off point, and then went sort of went from there and figured out the way we could do, you know, our own style of bagel. Gotcha. And uh, Liz, did you grow up with Jewish food at all or any deli in upstate New York? No, not whatsoever. No? No. I mean, my dad's from Brooklyn, but I didn't really grow up with that in upstate New York. Uh, was there a lot of Jewish food in upstate New York? No, it's like red sauce Italian. Yeah, yeah, it's more that. Um, so... For those who are sort of unfamiliar with like the Jewish deli and like the restaurant like that, like what is the importance of like, of, like a Jewish deli place in a community or like two people? Um, it's something that you both want to bring from a food point of view and from maybe more of an experiential point of view um, in creating the restaurant. Sure. From, yeah, I think from an experience point of view, in terms of like the dining experience, the idea of sort of an all-day, an all-day restaurant in a place that is, you know, a restaurant for the community, a restaurant that feels you know, like you belong, a restaurant feels like home, that you feel comfortable in. Um, that, that to me is sort of where, you know, deli and diner have a lot of crossover for me. You know, to me a deli is almost just like a Jewish diner. Sure. And that's kind of the way I was thinking about it when we approached opening, opening Friedman's. And, you know, the idea that you could come, come for lunch come back for sort of a more formal dinner, you know, maybe like even a business dinner, and then come back later in the night again for to just hang out at the bar. We, we've had people do that, and it's, it's, it's when people, like, when people do, do use the space in that way that I'm, I kind of get really excited that they, it seems like they really get what we're going for. And, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's kind of what, it, what the, the idea of the deli means. It's just like a, a meeting place in a way. 
Um, now, I know that you got started in restaurants a little bit later in life, or going to restaurants only compared because, Liz, you started cooking at 15. Yes. Uh, what drew you uh, to restaurants at such an early age? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. There's nobody in my family who has worked in the restaurant industry before, so I can't really explain what drew me to it, but uh, I've never held a job that wasn't in the kitchen. Now, I know that also at an early age, yeah, you were a big metal fan. Yeah, big into music. Still uh, am. Still am. Still are. Um, did you find any of the same parallels between sort of that heavy metal aesthetic, that sort of like no holds bar, just go after it in, yeah. in cooking? Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, the music is very aggressive and you kind of have to immerse yourself into it to be a metalhead. And also the kitchen is kind of the same way. It's like very gritty and, you know noisy and busy and it's just to me they make sense together they're very similar yeah i mean there's the thing that i like about the metal scene um is that there's it's like hard to be a faker yeah like you you're all in like you really either know your stuff about metal mm -hmm. or you don't and mm -hmm. i feel that's sort of the same way about cooking in kitchens especially today yes where people are like oh i sort of know my way around uh, you know these food blogs or things like that it's like yeah but you don't actually know <laughs> how to cook. Yeah. Um, now, uh, you went to go work for Jamie Bissonette. Yes. Who's also a fellow metalhead, hardcore guy. He's like a hardcore guy. He's a hardcore, he's more hardcore yeah. than metal. Um, but uh, one of the things that I read about you uh, when you're working there is that you learned a lot about intuition. Um, can you describe that a little bit about what that means as a chef and how you've carried that from your essentially first big job through here? Sure. I think. Uh when you graduate from culinary school, one of the things that they don't teach you is intuition. Uh, <laughs> you learn how to read a recipe and follow instructions, but intuition comes from making mistakes and doing the same thing repeatedly until you can figure out what is missing, what, what a dish needs, what's, you know, what's gonna make it taste better. And that only comes from working in an actual restaurant and, and being forced to prepare the same dish multiple times until you figure out what it is that it needs uh, and yeah I think that Jamie was very helpful because he gave me a lot of responsibility and, and freedom I guess so he just kind of forced me to learn it it was like there wasn't really an option yeah and it did it sort of show you like the box and parameters that you could live in and then have the freedom within that or was it completely like wild and out there no it definitely was like a box I mean yeah. it was like a young when I worked for Jamie I was I started working for him when I was 19 so he definitely didn't give me full responsibility, but uh, there were, you know, times when he was like, I want to put a special on the menu, here should we have, like, let's work with this, you and me, and it was those kind of instances that really taught me how to think and, and taste and season things. I mean, that's amazing to be at that age and be trusted with any sort of public yeah. creativity, yeah, for you sure. know? Um, did that trust get ingrained in you and did you allow that trust to be put onto other chefs that you worked with or do you still feel that you were like leading the cause like when we were at Mimi's or anything like that like how much of it is you feeling that you're leading the ship and how much of it is working with the team uh, I think everything is an open conversation with your team that's the whole point that you have people who work for you that uh, you know you believe in them and if it wasn't an open conversation, then the, nothing would be pushed. No boundaries would be pushed. That being said, I think especially at Mimi, it was hard for me to mm -hmm. allow people to have so much freedom because it was my first sure. job uh, where I was a chef and I wanted to control everything, you know. But the more I get into this, the more I realize that it is this give and take with your team. And if you choose the right people to work for you, then you're not going to have any issues. Yeah. Um, now, I know that you're both East Coasters, or East Coast, Toronto, New York, Boston. I know you spent time at Noma as well. Um, what brought you to L.A.? Because I feel like, and I am part of that exodus of East Coast to L.A., but what, what made you want to come to L.A.? What Was it wanting to open up a restaurant out here, or did you just come out here? You know, I, I specifically came out here to open this place. Um, when did in, you first have the idea then that you wanted to do it, or, or sort of like modern deli? Actually, after I'd moved out already, I knew that I wanted to open a restaurant here. And okay. It wasn't until figuring out the space and talking, I think I had a number of 
sort of extensive conversations with my sister, who helped design the space. Amanda, right? Yes, exactly. And it was when, you know, talking to her, I think we were at, we were probably at Langer's one day. Sure. And Classic. Classic. And we, you know, we were looking around and sort of saying, like, you know, what would this place look like if it didn't close at four? And it was open till, you know, nine o'clock at night, and the food was, like, a little bit more like dinner food sure and there was a cocktail bar and there were young people around us and there was good music playing and it like felt fun yeah because no one at Langer's who works there is under what 65 right exactly so and that's that's when it started and then and then we sort of said like wait I would I would love this and really we just ended up building a restaurant that like we wanted to go to more than than anything and that which which is rare to say that like we're going to open a restaurant that we want to go to right and then actually have it be successful that other people want to go to. Right, yeah, for sure. Um, which the same you could say about putting a menu together that you're like, this is the food that I want to cook. I hope people like it. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we're going to take a quick musical break, um, and then we're going to come back, talk about the opening of the restaurant, and then, uh, Liz, how you got involved in your approach to deli food without having a lifelong love for deli food. Because as a fellow Jew, I've been in great... I mean, like, I think I had, like, rugula and a pacifier when I was, like, six. Um, we have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
is troubling following Irvin Hydro is troubling water washing over me drowning my thoughts of future desires is troubling water washing over me drowning my thoughts Snacky Tunes. I'm here at Friedman's in Los Angeles with Jonah Friedman and Liz Johnson. Um, so after you and your sister Amanda had the initial idea to open it, uh, how long did it take to actually get it open? Because it's one thing to right. wax philosophically and dream over right. a number 19 at Langer's right. versus opening up a place that feels very thought out. You know, like mm-hmm. I've seen young restaurants mm-hmm. that are just like, oh yeah, you definitely just open this right you know you walk into here and you if you didn't know the store you're like this could be around for 50 years mm-hmm. in the best way possible mm-hmm. you know it's you got the wallpaper the dark wood like just the vibe the bar so how long did it take what was the process and that was that was the idea you know that astute because that's that's the idea sure with, with it is you know our our goal in in designing the space and in concepting the space was we wanted a restaurant that felt like it had been there for 50 years and we wanted to open with an immediate establishment, you know, and taking that kind of approach to, I think, both the design and, and the menu, really, um, in terms of putting things on there that we think could, you know, continue inevitably. Yeah, um, Liz, how did, perpetually. how did you get involved? Because um, you were in New York until pretty recently. Yeah, uh, I took a, about a month off before I came out here. Uh, one of the other owners was a friend of mine from before, and he reached out. He knew we were moving out here, so. And just said, uh, do you want to come in? I mean, well, let's talk about it, because if you, did you like deli? Because by the time you were in New York, you must have had some deli experiences. Yeah, like I lived on Orchard Street, so I was eating at Katz's like, right. frequently. Um, Which, by the way, does not have, I have found, the best reputation for people who are in L.A., I've talked to other deli people, yeah. not fans of, of cats. Yeah, really? but Langer's is questionable. <laughs> I mean, there are, the the sad secret of deli is that a lot of these places do not make their stuff in-house. No. no. I mean. Yeah, that's, that's a given. Yeah. It's pretty much a given. Yeah. Um, I think Katz's does make their stuff in-house, but not everything. Um, that being said, yeah. you know, we're fans of everyone, yeah. for the most part. Um, but how did you start approaching there must have been some freedom then because if you didn't grow up with deli food like if, if you put it on me to be like alright you're going to make a pastrami sandwich I'd be like alright I'm going to make the best classic Reuben pastrami sandwich or like white fish salad or pickles like I, I feel that you must have not had that heavy weight on your shoulders to follow the rules of like classic, classic Jewish cuisine yeah no I definitely felt uh, there's, there's certain items and ingredients that are integral to Jewish cuisine that I think are really cool, like half sours or, you know, all the smoked fish, all the, the sauerkrauts and that kind of stuff. And I wanted to be able to feature each of these in a way, you know, that I thought was appropriate 
but some things I didn't really want to mess with too much, like the soup or the Reuben, because like that would just piss people off, frankly. Right. Like if you come in and you're like, you can have your take on Reuben, and I've had the Reuben and it's awesome, but I, I definitely it's a familiar. Your take is still familiar yeah. as a Reuben. If you came in and you're like. Oh, the we made the bread out of sauerkraut and like yeah, it's like a yeah. cheese like sauce. A, yeah, like a naturally leavened bread. Like that just wouldn't work. <laughs> it's a gluten-free rye. You know, it's super <laughs> nice. Um, but there were some things that I thought, for example, half sours. Uh, I'm not like I think it's a cool idea, but I'm I don't want to really just eat a whole plate of it. I didn't want to write them off because it's unique to, to Jewish cuisine and it doesn't exist anywhere else. So I felt that we had to feature them, but that was kind of the catalyst for, well, how can I use this ingredient in a way that's not just putting them on a pickle plate? But it seems like, and it harkens back to sort of what you said, what you learned at Toro is here's the, the box of Jewish deli and uh, here's the freedom that I have within that box. Yeah. Um, so, how long did it take for you to come up the menu? What was the process of it, like, uh, in designing it and, and knowing that you wanted to have a bunch of the staples versus um, the new takes? And then, as a lifelong Jewish deli food guy, how did your input work on it as well? Uh, I mean, I think it took a couple months to put together. There was definitely some stuff that didn't make the cut or some things that just didn't really work. Like, for example, the whitefish cigar, something that's on the menu now, originally was like a whitefish donut, and that evolved. Uh, right. But there was, like, multiple renditions before we came up with a menu that I felt good about. Um, yeah. And how do you feel as a lifelong Jewish deli fan about being able to find some commonality in the food you grew up with, but also really ushering into this new era? I think that's what was exciting for us to begin with, was to create... I mean, you look at a lot of the sort of new school Jewish delis, and you look at that that trend across America, and everyone's just looking at, everyone's just taking the aesthetic of the deli and modernizing it to a minimalist design, light, bright, and airy, but they're serving the same deli food. Right, they're just, the difference, the big twist is that they make it all in-house. You make it all in-house, yeah, and it's like nicely, like, it has like good like, package design. Sure. That's your difference. And... What we wanted to do is, you know, actually go quite classic with the space in terms of the, the design and aesthetic, mm -hmm. but then have a menu that felt a little bit more thoughtful, considered, contemporary, you know, of taking dishes that, you know, like, like Liz said, like, lightly salted cucumbers are not the most interesting thing in the world. Sure. But make them into a salad with, you know, fennel and sturgeon avocado, it's, they really start to shine. Right. So I, I think to to kind of look at deli food and say, you know, some of this is great, some of this, frankly, could use a little help. Sure. And then figuring out where where that help, you know, could go was, was a really exciting I mean, it, it feels to me with the hours, the bar, the type of food... <laughs> um, there's a whole experience that's going on here uh, with the food. And one of the things I noticed when I was here the other week is that music also plays a big part in it. Like, the soundtrack is not at all what you would expect um, into that. And um, can you guys talk a little bit about that curation of music, um, but also creating the whole, the whole vibe for when people walk in? Right. I mean, I think... Part of it is creating a, you know, the idea of a Jewish deli that appeals to a younger generation. Right. So, obviously, you know, that starts with, you know, the, the idea of an, a total dining experience is, you know, starts with visuals, starts with music, you know, a vibe space. You know, who, who works there? How are they talking to you? Do they feel like people or are they just, you know, robotic waiters? And... All of those things, you know, had to be considered in terms of the way in which we wanted to, you know, appeal to people like like me, like my sister, and like like Liz. Like, where where do we want to eat, and how do we want to how do we want the space to be? How do we want people to interact with us? And so obviously, yeah, music music became a big part of it. Um, a lot of it is just music that we listen to. Um, my, our, our GM Michael he plays a lot of this stuff. Um, and my college roommate also runs our bar, 
Rob, he he has curated kind of a massive list of, of Friedman's Friedman selects for us as well. Uh, any metal on the playlist? Uh, late night sometimes. Late night? Judas Priest. Yeah. Yeah, probably not the heavier no. Norwegian. Well, sometimes, like sometimes. in between services, but not when customers are here. It, the problem is the the space isn't like super geared for it. Yeah. Um, I actually find that hip-hop ends up sounding better in the space. I mean, I feel like hip-hop is the main... If you open up a strip mall... Yeah. Strip mall yeah. restaurant, yeah. that's hip. Exactly. Hip-hop's always on right. the stereo. Exactly. Um, now, I want to get... A lot of Drake. A lot of Drake. Drake, I mean, it's yeah. what it's what can you do? It's good restaurant music, honestly. I feel like he has a restaurant setup yeah. where he just like... You know how they have like the car test for music? Yeah. yeah. He probably has like a small yeah. strip mall restaurant where he's like, does yeah. this song sound good? Right. It'll play across all of LA. Right, exactly. Um, now, Liz, with the um, Best New Chef Award that you won... Did you have any idea that it was coming? Did you have any idea that like the food that you were doing or, or how to do it uh, or, or, or was going to land you this, this uh, accolade? Uh, I mean, you never really expect to win something like that. I, I feel like when Jordana showed up, it was kind of a total surprise. But I think once, yeah, once she came to eat, we knew why she was here. And it was like, okay, this is happening. This is going to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a big shock for me. Um, and how do you feel about it? I mean, it's been about a week, a yeah, week been, now? It was last Monday. Uh, it's great. Yeah, I feel, you know, I've been reading those awards since I was a young cook. And to be a part of that family is kind of crazy. It's still surreal to me. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's totally awesome and totally well-deserved. So as Friedman enters, still continuing its, essentially its first year mm-hmm. in business, mm-hmm. um, where do you see its place in the LA dining landscape? Where do you see the future of the restaurant? You know, how do you continue to see its evolution? Because obviously this is something that's going to start, you're going to add different food, you're going to have different experiences. Where do you both see it um, going in the next year, the next five years? I really... I really want to build our, our late night a little bit more, honestly. Um, we have been doing these sort of DJ nights called Friends and Friedman's on Thursdays, and that's when we do the Pastrami Contract Supreme, um, and we also have two DJs who are set up on that uh, high table in the restaurant, and they just spin records, and you know, the bar stays open until 2 a.m., mm. Because we do, we have a we have a license to, to go until two a.m. Which is awesome. Which is awesome and so rare, and especially like pair that with full liquor, it's it's a really exciting opportunity. Yeah, and let me just say that as I'm staring at the full bar, yeah. I don't know of any other deli on either coast right. that has a full bar like you guys do. Right. Yeah. And also someone who knows that actually wield the liquor behind it and right. isn't just like some right. like liquor and splash or something right no yeah it's it's a full i mean we do we do classics and martinis and that's the focus of our menu um i mean ruben and a martini sounds right pretty good to me exactly um and then for the food i mean how do you do you go deeper into jewish menu do you start looking at like kreplach and cholent and like those sort of like other jewish staples that are maybe not well known updating them or do you sort of stick within the whole like deli menu I think for us right now, it's in our best interest just to really focus on controlling the quality as we get busier. Uh, I'm not really looking to expand too much more. I feel like we've done a good job of pushing what we can do with Jewish food, but at at, at a certain point, you've got to know where to draw the line. And uh, yeah, I don't know if like Krepla, for example, was something we had talked about in the beginning, but it's not really like a Jewish deli thing. No. To me, that's something you eat at your house. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're just trying to knock what we're doing out of the park and just nail it. Yeah. I mean, and you offer lunch, a different lunch menu, a different brunch menu, and a dinner, and for the size of the space, it's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, listen, I want to thank you both for your time. Congratulations again. Uh, super excited that this is literally down the house for me and I can just literally roll the stroller nice. uh, on my way. Um, where can people find you online in real life? Where can they get the information? Freemansla.com mm-hmm. and 
Friedman's underscore LA on Instagram. Great. I think we use Instagram more than we use anything else. So like any announcements that we have, anytime we do a late night, it's always on Instagram. Good Graham game? Okay, Graham game. Like, you know. We're it's, working on it. It's good. It's a lot. It's a lot. To be honest, it's it's like a full time. It's a full time. It's a full time job where you're like, do I know someone who's really good at the gram that right. can just hang out? Right. Um, well, listen. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate you. taking the time, yeah. and uh, um, we'll be seeing you quite often. Awesome. We have another song from the archives, and then we have a live performance in studio here on Heritage Radio Network on Snacky Tunes. Enjoy.
I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso sherry butts. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used, and then the, uh, the whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, the copper pot still makes for an extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, every time I have a sip, I, I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for the Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Bodega live in studio. Good to see all of you. Just came from Northside Fest. How was that? Playing on Bedford. Yeah, it's like they shut down the Between, thing. Yeah, the Apple Store and Dwayne Reed. It's kind of perfect, actually, for us. Yeah, it's like a dream come true to sit right in the center of consumerism and play about anti-capitalism. Yeah. Uh, do you think that they heard the message? No. <laughs> <laughs> someone like very upset that they had to be late to their genius bar <laughs> because you were playing songs um I, they were like walking by and like filming us with their iPhones, you know so they could snapchat later but no one you know can't knock the hustle when bedford's making capital you used to be called bodega bay and nothing that this band does is unintentional so i'm curious why you dropped the bay part but kept the name um and what the new name and the songs you write couldn't be done under the old moniker? Well, the simple answer is that this is a totally different band. Me and Nikki were in Bodega Bay, but philosophically it's uh, kind of a, trying to do something similar, but the sound is totally different. So, you know, it's a more streamlined sound, so it's got a streamlined name. But why keep part of the name and not just do a whole new thing? Because I wanted people to realize the philosophical connection between Bodega Bay. I thought the kind of songwriting and the kind of prankster thing that we had set up I didn't want to I didn't want to let go of that and you know I, I play shows around town as Bodega Ben and I kind of like that became my identity I didn't want to lose lose that you know how has the philosophy evolved from the last project around the Bodega Ben into just Bodega well Bodega Bay was kind of rock music about rock music yeah the, yeah we were kind of critiquing and celebrating the rock apparatus and Bodega does something similar but it's a little bit more autobiographical now. So I'd say we, we turn that same lens instead of simply on songwriting tropes or performance tropes, we turn them on our daily lives. So it's a little bit more, not that Bodega Bay didn't do that to a certain extent, but there's... It's, it's, I think this particular album is focusing on like yeah, our documentary of living our lives through the screen. Um, you get a lot of more different imagery of computers than I, uh, the last band had like none of that really. Uh, so you're looking more inward with this project as opposed to the previous one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bodega Bay, I would say, was looking inward as well. I mean, it was kind of about the... Bodega Bay started as the the realization of the sort of existential guilt I had as a, as a lifelong rock fan of waking up being like, wait, I hate rock music. I hate rock culture. It's so stupid. It's so superficial. It's relation to capitalism. Um, it's relation to just the, the superficial aspects of consumer society and, like... M all the utopian things about rock music, all, all, you know, how inspiring it can be and being a part of something genuinely DIY, everything good, uh, uh, the ecstatic things about performance, everything good about it was sort of um, outweighed by all the negative things. So Bodega Bay was kind of the, in this Hegelian synthesis of putting the celebration against the critique. Um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> that was a, essentially, <laughs> no, you were great. Uh, yeah. Just essentially how the philosophy is now evolved in Bodega and how it's what's changed. Right. Well, I feel like I, you know, I kind of said everything I wanted to say about that particular subject. So, Bodega, our, our current subject right now is kind of how social media affects people's lives. You know, there there's some more personal songs on the record. There's like a song about my mom. There's a song about my ex-girlfriend. There's a song about one of my friends who passed away. So. You know, I, I, you know, we're almost like a more traditional band now. I'm, the, I'm singing the blues essentially, uh, but I, I don't know. I think I think if if, if anyone were, you know, of, of the of the 100 people that will hear the Bodega album, if only one of them heard the Bodega Bay album, they would see that it's a sequel. It's it's you know, there there are references back to it, 
and it's, you know, I see it as a, you know, following the same lineage in a way. Can we hear a song? Yeah. What are you going to play for us first? We're going to play uh, the first track off our upcoming record. It's called How Did This Happen? Here we go, Bodega, live on Snacky Tunes. This is new Bodega song. and how that's a positive thing. How does that feed into the recording process and what did that go into writing this record? Um, well, even though we just basically recorded the whole record live to tape, we went in with an extreme amount of intention. There was a super long pre-production process and nothing on the sound is not there, not meant to be there. You know, it's, you know, it's a very minimal record. It's not a very guitar record heavy record all there is is just a floor tom and a snare a separate hi-hat sometimes and two guitars playing very specific kind of pointless parts it's like sound sculpture in a way um so you know what's pretentious about it <laughs> in the in the best sense of the word is that it's you know it's extremely thought out uh it's it's, it's artificial did you start with more? I mean, obviously, there's bass in there as well. Did you start with more on the record and then strip things out and strip things out, or did you just go in with almost what we see in this room? It's pretty much exactly what you see in this room. I think a, a lot of the songwriting processes you write, for me at least, I like to write really melodic kind of songs with you know ma big major chord, kind of like the most obvious pop rock kind of things, and then you get really good melodies out of that. But then you, when you perform the song, then you take away that guitar part. That's the, that's the first thing. 
and then you just build up the rhythm section, get an interesting groove going, a good bass line, and then you treat the, the guitars more texturally. And we had Madison do a bunch of demos for us uh, and drilling and everything like that, and that's where we hashed out everything right before we went into the actual recording process. Like, we knew this is the part you're going to play, and this is, you know, this is exactly what's going to happen. And after you listened, did you pull even more out, or was it just you knew before you hit record, or just as more continue to get stripped out? Doing the demos? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it shaped a lot of new guitar parts and stripping down, definitely. Uh, switching up the drums so it's not, like, intrusive. Can we hear another song? Yeah. What are you going to play for us? Um, we're going to play Margo, one of my songs. I touch myself while staring at your chat text box. Do you think the message that you are bringing to the forefront works universally, or is it mostly just uh, American-fed? The internet is universal. I think it, you know that's how people listen to us and have heard about us. You know, our song streaming on different like platforms and uh, online articles and things like that. So I think everyone kind of comes at it in a similar fashion. Yeah, I mean, especially with Brexit going on and the UK, the UK people sure. definitely relate. But I mean. Bodega, I don't want to pigeonhole us. We're not going to be just a band that only sings about Web 2.0. You know, our mantra is the best critique is self-critique. Our songs are all about pointing out our own moral hypocrisies, and I think a lot of people can relate. You know, we're, we're in a very self-aware epoch right now, and we're just kind of soundtracking that. As your own kind of like radical honesty and personal truths evolve, do the songs take on different meanings, or once you kind of get past the issue you're dealing with in a song, does the song go away or just become a time capsule? Um, yeah, it's a really good question, actually. One song that has changed a lot for me, we have this song called Jack and Titanic. When I first wrote it and we first started playing it, I saw it as pure satire, like a very silly kind of um, taking the... It, it was almost... It was theoretical, and I was taking the piss out of a certain male masculinity, but then I really reflected on it. It was actually through a conversation with Austin we were making the record, he kind of made me realize that he's like, I think, Ben, what you're singing in these lines, you really mean. And I realized I did mean them. And I, some of the come ons in particular were me coming on to Nikki in a way when I was sort of courting her. And I wrote I wrote that song right at the beginning of our relationship. And I realized the the sort of toxic masculinity in it is actually my own, which actually made the song more interesting. And there's a certain kind of nostalgia in the song, too, about, you know, I was really thinking of the movies that taught me what it is to be a man. I'm saying man in quotes, which is our Jackie Chan movies, James Bond movies. You know, I, I still to this day have this fantasy of sitting down at a blackjack table with a beautiful girl in my arms, smoking a cigar and kind of like, you know, being knowing 20 languages and just being cool as a cucumber. Um, you know, and that, that's in Jack and Titanic, I think. We want to thank you for coming by today. <laughs> <laughs>
Where can people hear the record, watch your videos, which are incredible, by the way. They're really awesome. Where can people find you, uh, check out your upcoming tour dates? Um, we have a Tumblr for Bodega Amazing. NYC Tumblr, uh, which where you can find all the dates. Has, which has Ben has done a great job of like categorizing all the past shows and future ones, and he also has like all the like he has everything on there. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, all those other kind of things that you would expect a band to have, and that we sing about. Yeah, Spotify. That, that you know, if you Google band Bodega New York City band, you'll probably be able Bodega to find BK. us. Bodega BK. Yeah. Even better, coming IRL. Uh, what's the name of the last song you're going to play for us? Uh, Warhol. Warhol. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.